Needs no introduction. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Slim. (laughs) Oh, Slim. All right. Well, uh, I had hoped that we would be doing this, that that we'd be doing this on drive-in, but we good? All right, sweet. Um, so I so I was hoping that we would be doing this on on drive-in, but it's okay. We'll make do. We'll make do over the camera. Um, and so and so it's it's especially a pleasure for me to preach to you on Ga- on Gaudete Sunday this year. Uh, I had the opportunity to do so last year too. So this will be this will be a mosaic a mosaic tradition. And so, and so and so this Sunday joy is our theme. But since I'm preaching, this can't be an entirely happy sermon because you you know how this normally goes. So so. So last October, I attended one of my favorite conferences of all of the conferences that I've ever attended in my entire life. It was, it was, it was an opportunity to gather with my fellow black brothers and sisters in Christ in an atmosphere where the, where the history and experience of, of the black church was elevated and celebrated. It was an opportunity to meet with people who, up until that day, I only knew them through Twitter. It was an opportunity to worship Christ in a truly uninhibited way. Now, now I'm deeply thankful for Mosaic because I can do so here, but, but that's not everyone's experience. And I think that that's because there are two things that are not often held together in the Christian mind. And, interesting, and interestingly, it was the title of this conference, and so it's the title of this, of this sermon. And, and so the two things that the Christian must hold together And the two things that the Christian ought to know more deeply than anyone else in this world are joy and justice. Joy and justice. These are what the Son of God became flesh to bring. And these are what those united to Christ must show and seek. Isaiah 61 is going to make that abundantly clear. So please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Isaiah 61, and I'll be reading out of the ESV. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. 
Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask for joy. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your joy. Lord, that you would open your word to us this morning uh, and, re- and reveal not only who you are and what you've done, but Lord, what you would have us do. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So brothers and sisters, joy and justice are, 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 two, are, are the two things that may seem most out of reach for us today. And I submit to you that this has actually always been the case. So when Isaiah penned this, this, this prophetic book back in the 8th century, during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Israel and Judah were going through some, some tumultuous political times. So not only were they involved in constant war, But in the middle of those wars, those those kings were tempted to build alliances with their enemies in order to survive against other enemies. So, for example, uh, in in Isaiah 7, we're told that Ahaz, when he's being opposed by the king of Israel and the king of Syria, he went to Assyria for help, which which was actually one one of their enemies, when he was supposed to go to the Lord. And so... And so, and so Isaiah is often, is often split into these, into these three sections. So you've got the first section where Isaiah is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem during the Assyrian invasion. And so these are, these are chapters 1 to 39. Then the second is where Isaiah is speaking to the exiles in Babylon. And so those are, those are chapters 40 to 55. And then the third are where Isaiah is addressing the people after they've returned to their land. This is chapters 56 to 66. So for anyone who's, who's aware of Israel's history, you'll, you'll notice that this covers a period of almost 250 years, and Isaiah was not alive, was not alive that long. And so we're left with a few options. Some, some scholars suggest that, that there were at least three authors of the book, because prophets don't speak beyond their audience and don't make predictive prophecies. Now, those are assumptions that I do not share. Because if the Lord of time wants a prophet and his people to know what's going to happen in the centuries to come, I ain't got no problem with him doing that. So so I see this book as the spirit of God telling Isaiah to utter words of of both condemnation and hope to the people of God. A message that their idolatry and their oppression of the poor would lead to their exile, but also that God would send a redeemer, a servant, a Messiah who would truly set them free. And so this brings us to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 which is part of this, this third part of Isaiah, this, this part when the, when the people of God were told what would happen after a brutal time of exile. And so the speaker is called the servant elsewhere in Isaiah, and this person would be characterized as the servant of God, living a life in full obedience to the Lord. And when you hold the book together, you also find that this servant is also the Messiah, the anointed one. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. But before we focus on that person, 
I want to focus on why this person is so necessary. Take a look at chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. What did this servant, Messiah, come to do? To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And I'm skipping verse, verse 2 for now, but you'll, but you'll see why. To comfort, all who are, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. It goes on and on and on and on. And so the question is, for whom is the servant coming? Who does this servant care about? Our God is a God of the oppressed, of the poor, of the brokenhearted, of the captive. These are those whom, these are those whom the Lord has, an, has, has special care for. Those who are oppressed spiritually by sin and the devil. Those who are oppressed economically. Those who are oppressed politically. All of them. If you are weak or if you have been weakened, the servant comes for you. But are you strong? Do you have no need? Do you trample upon those who have less than you? Do those, do, those, do those folks take up no space in your mind or in your actions? Well, then you are among those whom this servant arms himself against. But has your life been turned to ashes? Are you overwhelmed with fear? Has mourning given you late nights? Do despair and depression threaten to overcome you? Has this pandemic taken you to your breaking point as you lament the fact that you can't see the family members that you want to see? I mean, I know there are some who you don't want to see, but think, but think about like the really fun ones. It, is, it, is it constantly crushing to watch the news and get new accounts of daily death? Are you discouraged by the consistent presence of racial strife and violence? Are you dismayed by the constant presence of sin and temptation in your own life, in your relationships, and in every single system in which you're a part? Do you see a broken healthcare system where the people who need care are refused it? Where maternal and infant mortality surpass that of other developed nations? Where women who find that they're pregnant choose within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy not to raise the child growing within them? Where being overwhelmed with the stresses of financial and, and relational brokenness, lives are snuffed out? Do you see a broken economy where wage theft accounts for billions of dollars for which very few are held accountable? Do you see a broken criminal justice system where, as Brian Stevenson has said, you're treated better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent? Compounded on top of that, you may be treated better in many cases if you're white and guilty than if you're not white and innocent. Do you see a broken public discourse where racists and socialists are thrown around to silence people without any regard for what those words mean? Do you see not only a global pandemic that's claiming lives, but the fact that people who, but, but, but the fact that because people are often stuck at home, those seeking to get out of abusive relationships are then even more constricted? That the vulnerable seeking to flee their abusers are given even fewer resources now than before COVID? Do you see a world in which SIDS exists, sudden infant death syndrome, the condition where infants die in their sleep for no apparent reason? Can you imagine the terror with which new parents could live? The child swaddle industry knows. Does all that make you just want to curl up into a ball? Well, this discomfort, this, this aching, this is what the people of Israel felt. And this is what Advent is about. 
This is what waiting is about. It's about being shrouded in deep darkness that's so thick that you can't see your way out. It's those moments when you feel like your marriage is going to fall apart because of a giant fight that you just had with your spouse. It's those moments when you as a single person are told, even by the church, in a way that's contrary to Christ, that the only way to be a faithful Christian is for you to be married. And so you yearn and you yearn and you fight for it and it never happens and you don't get the support that you need. It's those moments when you, knowing the sexual ethic put forth in Scripture, struggle against your own sexual desires, and you can't see a road to redemption, and no one around you, even those who say that they love you, is willing to walk alongside you in solidarity. But the people of Israel in exile, and in general when we deal with the consequences of sin and oppression, that's our mode. And it's easy to forget that when we read these passages. But then what answer does the Lord give in the rest of this chapter? Verses 5 to 7 continue the themes of verses of 1 to 4, these, this reversal of fortunes. Verses 5 and 6 basically say that, that, that foreigners to the people of God will do the mundane tasks, but the people of God will be free to be priests, that the wealth of oppressing nations would be theirs to celebrate in. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. They shall have everlasting joy. Whoever this servant is, he has the power to bring joy. And then there's a seeming switch in verse 8. We, 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 we turn to the Lord. What does the Lord have to say about your suffering? What does the Lord have to say about the role of the servant in the midst of oppression? Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So what must you know and believe from these verses? That the Lord loves justice and hates robbery and wrong. So here, here, here he's talking about both idolatry and the ways in which we fail to love our neighbors. And it's not, it's not just that the Lord doesn't like justice and, and he doesn't dislike robbery and wrong in burnt offerings or in our relationships. No, he arrays himself fully toward justice and, and unequivocally against injustice. So you know that phrase that people, love, that people love to quote from Martin Luther King, who's, uh, who's quoting a 19th century Unitarian minister, uh, Theodore Parker, where he, where, where he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Have you heard that, heard that line before? Well, if you know me, then you know that I can never uncritically repeat a Unitarian. So the arc of, the, the, the arc of our moral universe does not inevitably bend toward anything if we're the ones bending it. We're the ones bending it toward death and despair. If that arc depends on you, you ain't bending it toward justice. The, the entrance of sin into the world and into you and I sends it into a death spiral. Death can only beget death. Sin can only beget sin. And so, and so the Lord had to step in for the sake of the creation which he loved. 
And so he promised to Adam and Eve that, that one of their offspring would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. He promised to Abraham an everlasting covenant that he would be, his, that he would be Abraham's God and Abraham's offspring would be God's people. He told the prophets, particularly Isaiah, that a servant was coming, a Messiah was coming, an apocalyptic man was coming, God was coming. Sin demands a reckoning, and God demands a people. How can all this be true? Well, centuries after these prophecies, an angel would come to a young woman, and this angel would tell this young woman, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the, the, the Lord saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This Jesus is the servant. This Jesus is the one who would save his people from their sins. This Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. This Jesus is that apocalyptic man. This Jesus is God. How do I know this? Am I drifting from our passage? No, not in the least. Because around 30 years after his birth, this same Jesus would stand in the synagogue, unroll a scroll, and read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sat down and said in the greatest mic drop of all time, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hear that? That's me. The Messiah has come. And why did Jesus come? He has come to exchange beauty for your ashes, strength for your fear, gladness for your mourning, and peace for your despair. Brothers and sisters, we have profound reasons to mourn. It's Advent season, and we ought to. Any honest assessment of life brings up example after example, encouraging us to be cynical, to be hopeless, to not trust one another, to never allow ourselves to get too excited because who knows, tragedy could just lie around the corner, to never battle for justice because why bother? People will never treat each other right and give one another their, their due. We even look at Christ's life. And just think of the Isaiahic prophecy that, that he would be a man of sorrows, and we impose our dreariness on our Savior. But that's not who he is. And that's not who we are in union with him. Why did he preach? Why did he heal? Why did he live? Why did he die? Take a look at John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The Son of God did not veil his glory and take on the form of a servant for you to sulk your way through life. He did not do so for you to merely grin and bear it. How can James start his epistle saying, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How can he say that? Because he saw a savior 
who exemplified that perfection. He saw a savior who was perfectly steadfast when you and I fail. A savior who, according to Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is his joy that he came to give, and that is a full joy. It's a joy that he sought when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. No matter what pleasures Satan set before him, he was laser-focused on a singular joy. It was that joy that he sought when his brother slept on him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was that joy that he sought when Judas betrayed him. It was that joy which he sought when they drove nails into his hands and his feet. It was that joy that he sought when they hung him high and they stretched him wide. It was that joy that he he sought when he drank the cup of God's wrath against sin down to the dregs. It was that joy that he sought even in those moments when he was on the cross suffering because of you, he, he, because of you and me. When, he, when, when that communion that he had enjoyed with the Father from eternity past, when he felt that broken and experienced that he had never experienced before, but he knew that a joy was coming. This was the joy that he sought when death and Satan laughed at him when he was in the grave. But, but death and the devil did not know that this man's victory was sure from the very beginning because this was not a joy that ignores pain. This is not a joy that shies from agony. This is a joy that bears it and stands fast in the, through it because death could not hold my Jesus down. Death cannot hold the author of life. Death cannot hold the second person of the Trinity. And at the very idea, my Lord throws back his still human head in roaring laughter. God raised him up to show you that divine laughter gets the last word. Divine joy wins the day. And divine joy sustains those who are united to Christ. That's what the end of Isaiah 61 is about. Take a look at verses 10 to 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing, I will rejoice. My, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is our response, brothers and sisters, greatly rejoicing in the Lord, even in the midst of pain, receiving the gift of joy and exercising the muscle of joy. Why? Because when the Son of God was clothed in perfect righteousness by his perfect life, when we put our faith in him, he clothes us with that same righteousness. When, when we repent and believe, setting our hope in and our lives on Christ as our only salvation, we're united to him by an unbreakable bond. His garments of salvation are ours. His robe of righteousness is ours. And that reconciliation between us and the Lord is finished. And the joy of our salvation 
is taste it. Because it's not complete. Because this isn't just a personal picture. It's a communal picture. It's a cosmic picture. You remember the wedding imagery? It, it, it reminds us that our lives are not just individual. They're, they're lived before a community of saints. You remember the natural imagery? It reminds us that sin has not only infected us but it's infic- and, 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 and our communities, but it's also infected the entire world. And I skipped over verse 2 in Isaiah 61 uh, because Jesus strategically only says half of it in his synagogue address. Remember? He says says that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where he stops. But the verse continues. uh, it, it, It continues with, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because the first coming was not to condemn, but to save. Jesus is pretty clear about that. It's to to bind up, it's to heal, it's to call back to Leviticus and the year of Jubilee when when captives and slaves are set free, when when your student debt is forgiven, when, when when, when the people rest. That's the year of the Lord's favor, the age in which we now live. But we're still waiting for the day of the Lord. Round one was the first coming, the coming of peace. But round two is game over. Round two is mop-up time. We're, 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 in that time between, we're in that time between rounds. We have, we, have a, we have a taste of joy, a tantalizing morsel of the meal to come. But, and, and we can enjoy even, even momentary visible victory over sin and the devil, but, but they, they always seem to pop back up, at least experientially. But here's a peek behind the curtain. Sin and death are dead. And they've been dead since Jesus killed them on the cross. And they've been dead to you ever since you were baptized into Jesus' death. All you feel is the, fl- is the flailing of a dying beast. A beast that wants you to think that it's powerful. When it knows it only has seconds to live. And those seconds, those seconds seem so long to us. But they are not forever. And so when you're tempted to focus on the death throes of our enemies, when you're you're tempted to consider sin, death, and the devil as stronger than they are, when they encroach upon your joy, remember this, dear brother, dear sister. The long-awaited Christ came to bring true justice and true joy. So we await biblical justice and fight for it now, and we await everlasting joy and we fight for it now. Because by the Spirit, we can rejoice in the midst of real grief. We can rejoice in the midst of real fear. We can rejoice in the midst of real pain. Because grief, fear, and pain are real. Your grief, your pain, your fear are real, but they are not ultimate. And Christ felt all of them. But they did not win, and they will not win. Because we await a day when sorrow will be no more when sin will be no more, when your chronic pain will be no more, when when interpersonal strife will be no more, when the cosmos will be redeemed. We await full, personal, communal, and cosmic redemption. But until then, joy must fill the gap. Not fleeting circumstantial happiness, joy. Joy in the fact that Christ died, rose, and ascended in order to send the Holy Spirit, not just to light upon us for a time, but to dwell within us. Joy in the fact that the enemies with with whom we struggle have no chance of winning. 
Joy in the fact that the sinful systems in which we find ourselves have an expiration date. Joy in the fact that even when we sin, our Father in heaven is faithful and just to forgive us because of our union with Christ. Joy in the fact that a city is coming, and that city won't have a temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Joy in the fact that Christ will rule with righteousness, joy, and justice, and we will be at his side. Remember that in your work. Remember that when you're overwhelmed. Remember that when your three-year-old won't behave. Remember that when your boss doesn't recognize your worth. Remember that in the midst of the dysfunctional relationship with your in-laws. Remember that in the pandemic. That your faith, your hope, your peace, and your joy are in the risen king. And we do not yet see everything under his feet, but we will. True and everlasting joy and justice are coming. And that's reason to rejoice. Let's pray.